Let me invite you to take your Bibles tonight and go to Daniel chapter 9, please. Daniel chapter 9. While you're turning there, just by way of introduction, I want to give three introductory comments tonight. The first, outside of preaching at church camp or preaching with a broken arm, I think this is the only, the first time that I've ever preached without a tie, which may be an indication that we are in the last days. So that just (laughs) might set the table for that this evening. The second is that... um, I think there are two extremes with regard to prophecy. I think that we can spend not enough time looking at it, or we can spend all of our time looking at it to the exclusion of other Bible doctrines. I think it's important for us to maintain that balance, that we don't think the whole Bible is just merely to satisfy our prophetic curiosities and ignore other doctrines, but then because it seems so mysterious to us to avoid it altogether. I think we want to find the balance between those two extremes. The third thing that I would like to say by way of introduction tonight is this, because we have three independent Baptist preachers preaching on prophecy over the next nine weeks, the likelihood that all three of us are going to agree on every minor interpretation is minimal. So we should be looking for the things that unite us rather than small isolated things that we might see a razor's thin difference between. For all of those reasons, I'm glad that I'm going first because it won't look like I'm correcting anybody. It will look like they're correcting me. And I'm glad that Dr. Mullinex is going last because I would hate in any way, shape, or form to pretend like I don't agree with him. Even if we don't agree, I don't know how I would stand at the judgment seat of Christ and explain to the Lord why I disagreed with Dr. Mullinex. So that all having been said, let's go to Daniel chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. The Bible says, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now these verses, I think, give us a window into the heart of Daniel as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen this book. In the first year of Darius, which would have been the first year of the Medo-Persian Empire, Daniel thinks we're just about done here with Gentile dominion. After all, Jeremiah prophesied that there would be 70 years of Babylonian captivity and That's all the Babylonian captivity there would be. So us Jewish people will be free, but now these Medes and Persians have taken over. How are we to explain all of that? And Daniel is somewhat in a conundrum about that. And so he begins to fast and to pray and to ask for clarification about this prophecy. So in the book, and later in this chapter, as a matter of fact, God is going to unfold to him, no, no, we're just getting started with Gentile world dominion. It is true that there have been 70 years of Babylonian captivity, but now we're starting a whole new count that's going to include not uh, 70 years, but 77s of years, 70 weeks of years. There's still a 490-year timetable that I have for Gentile world dominion. 
So when we open the book in chapter 1, we see Daniel and his friends thoroughly under Gentile world dominion. I mean, they've been taken away as captives into Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar has his thumb on them. They are being trained in the doctrine, in the philosophy of the Babylonians. They're given Babylonian identity by the change of their names. Everything is designed for the Gentiles to squeeze these people of God into their mold of thinking. But the Bible begins to unfold as we get into chapter 2 exactly where all of this is headed. What is the timeline for all of this? And it all happens when Nebuchadnezzar dreams a dream about this image. Go back to Daniel chapter 2 and look at verse number 36. Daniel chapter 2 verse 36. The Bible says this is the dream. And we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou art king, art a king of kings. For the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of heaven hath he given into thine hand and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. And after thee there shall arise another kingdom in fear to thee and another third kingdom of brass which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. So Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and this dream is a statue, and the statue is comprised of various metals. And the metals start with a precious metal at the top and they decrease in value as the statue is viewed from top to bottom. So it starts off with a head of gold and David is very clear here in interpreting the dream under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Nebuchadnezzar that he is this head of gold. So the head of gold represents Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar who's ruling Babylon. Now gold's a very fit description of Babylon because Marduk the chief god of the Babylonians was a god of gold. In addition to that much of Nebuchadnezzar's building projects were comprised of gold. As a matter of fact Herodotus who came on the scene 90 years after Nebuchadnezzar that historian was amazed at how much gold Babylon had used in their building projects. So Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold. After the head of gold, you have a thing that gives, the statue gives way to two arms and a chest of silver. And this represents the Medo-Persian Empire. So you have two entities that are coming together into one. And that's exactly what was true of the Medo-Persian Empire. There were two countries, the Medes and the Persians, and they united together to form one empire. And that empire is represented by silver. This is significant because Persia had a lot of silver. It was their medium of exchange. And they were known for heavily taxing people. And when they taxed them, they taxed them in silver. 
So silver is an apt description of the Medo-Persian Empire. But it is significant for us to notice that silver is inferior to gold in value. You would rather have gold than silver. I would take either, but you'd rather have gold than silver if you had to choose. Silver is inferior. And that's the very word that the Bible uses here. Nebuchadnezzar, you're going to give way to a kingdom, and the kingdom that you're going to give way to is going to be inferior than you. Then he moves down to a third element and the arms of silver give way to a belly to and thighs of brass. And this represents Greece. The great king, Alexander the Great, when he died, his kingdom was subdivided. And so that's exactly what happens. You have a belly that subdivides into two legs. And the idea here, of course, is that Alexander the Great had four generals, but two of those generals really did, their, their part of the inheritance really didn't amount to anything. The two predominant generals that would have any significance in history were the ones who were the true authentic successors of Alexander the Great. So you have one entity that basically divides into two divisions, and those two divisions are characterized by brass. Now this is significant because brass was an implement of war, and obviously Alexander the Great and his successors were characterized by warfare. As a matter of fact, the Bible is very clear in the latter part of verse 39 that this third kingdom shall bear rule over all the earth. It would be characterized by aggression. This gives way to complete legs, and the complete legs are legs of iron, and that is characteristic of the Roman Empire, which the Grecian Empire would give way to. Now, once again, you have two legs, which represent the two divisions of the Roman Empire. There's an east division and a west division of the Roman Empire, and iron was a military implement, a very strong military implement used for crushing. We even speak of a rod of iron because it's crushing. And that's the idea that is articulated in the interpretation that this fourth kingdom is going to be ruthless. That it's going to be characterized by pulverizing and bruising. It's going to be very ferocious in the way that it deals with people. It will deal with them with ruthless aggression. But then there's this last stage that gives way because the feet of iron, legs of iron, give way to feet of iron and clay. Now notice it's almost as if the Roman Empire here has two divisions to it. It has a division that's all of iron, but then it has a later division that is of iron and clay. So that iron and clay is picturing a revived Roman Empire. This is the last stage of Gentile world dominion. And the interesting thing about this is that iron and clay really don't adhere well to each other. And this is going to be, therefore, a loose type of confederation. It seems like it's going to come together for military power. It will be strong. But yet the adhesion that holds them together will be somewhat brittle. It will be strong yet brittle at the same time, the Bible tells us. They're not going to completely adhere to one another. Think of it almost like you would think of the United Nations today, how it has, um, you know, people still maintaining their national identity but coming together in a solitary unit for military purposes. But then in verse 45 of Daniel 2, he tells us about this final kingdom that's going to come. And of course, when we're looking at a statue and its deteriorating value, we understand that a statue is something that is made, it's manufactured, it's something that man creates. 
But in verse 45, he tells us that there's going to be this stone that is cut out of the mountain without hands, and it's going to break this statue into pieces. It's going to knock this uh, statue completely over. So there is going to, and this represents the kingdom of God. There is coming a day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's going to be a point where there are not going to be any longer any man-made kingdoms of deteriorating value upon this earth. Our God is going to come and he is going to set up his kingdom. And when he does, he will topple all of these other man-made kingdoms over. Now, when we get into chapter 3 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar fights against us. Because you remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a head of gold, which was going to give way to other kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar essentially says, over my dead body. And in chapter 3, he makes a statue, not of divine revelation, but a statue of his own imagination. And you remember the statue that he makes in chapter 3 is all of gold. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I'm not giving way to anybody. I'm all that in a bag of Fritos. I'm not giving myself away to anybody else. I'm not letting my kingdom pass on to somebody else. I am the sum total of Gentile world dimension, and you must worship me. At what time you hear the music, you will bow down and worship not merely a head of gold, but an entire statue of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar, making the statue, is actually defying the revelation of what was given in chapter 2. But in chapter 4, God does something very interesting. He causes Nebuchadnezzar to become a beast. Nebuchadnezzar goes out and eats grass. Not only can Nebuchadnezzar not control the world, he can't even control himself. You understand that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And God's letting him know you're not all that in a bag of Fritos. As a matter of fact, if you, I take my hand off of you, Nebuchadnezzar, you are nothing more than a wild animal. In your own life, you will deteriorate and fold without the sustaining power of God behind you. It's almost as if Babylon can't see the writing on the wall. Which brings us to chapter 5, where there is writing on the wall. And it's many, many tickle you farsum. You are weighed in the balances, Babylon. You are found wanting. Therefore, the kingdom is going to be stripped from you and it is going to be given unto another person. And indeed, that very night, the king of the Chaldeans, Belshazzar, was slain and Darius the Mede came in. Now think about it. God has already revealed the ferocity of Nebuchadnezzar by allowing him to become the beast that he was. Now when Darius the Mede takes over, you understand that Darius the Mede also reveals his ferocious character by throwing Daniel into a den of lions, revealing the ferocity that he has in Daniel chapter 6. And these men who are acting beast-like set the table for the second major vision in the book of Daniel, which comes in chapter 7, the beast of Daniel 7. Take your Bibles, let's flip over there, Daniel chapter 7, and let's begin reading at verse number 3. Daniel 7, verse 3. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it. 
And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side and had three ribs in the mouth of it between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it and was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, which whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man and a mouth speaking great things." Now, these beasts that Daniel dreams about are going to mirror the statue that Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed about. The difference is this. When you think of a statue, you think of something that is man-made, fabricated, but you think of something that is inanimate. It doesn't have life in it. But when you see a beast, a beast is different. A beast has horrific life in it. It is characterized by a ruthless energy. And that's the telling thing here. Indeed, this vision of Daniel is given at night, almost to make it more spooky. The wind is blowing to make it ominous. And these beasts arise out of the sea, which you, of course, to a Jewish person who lived in an agrarian society, you know how fearful the sea was. Read the accounts of the disciples when they're out on a water, when a storm comes. That was like the most fearful thing in the world to a Jewish mindset. And it is in this atmosphere that these beasts are presented. All right, let's explore them. The first is a lion with eagle's wings, and that represents Babylon again. Now, according to Jeremiah 49, 19 through 22, the lion with wings was a virtual symbol of Babylon. As a matter of fact, lion with wings are actually found on some of their reliefs. So what's the the significance of a lion with wings? Well, a lion is fierce. Wings represent swiftness. And that's exactly what Babylon was. It was characterized by swift and fierce conquest. But this beast is going to have its wings clipped. And Nebuchadnezzar indeed would have his wings clipped. He's going to give way to a bear that's raised up on one side. And the bear that's raised up on one side represents Medo-Persia. Now, a bear, of course, is massive in size, more massive than a lion. Medo-Persia in size would be bigger than Babylon, but it's slower. It won't move as swift as Babylon would move. But a bear's known for its appetite. As a matter of fact, they say that when a bear is raised up on one side, it's ready to pounce. But the fact that it's raised up on one side also reveals to us that one side is more dominant than the other. And certainly that was true of the Medo-Persian Empire. The Persians were more dominant than the Medes were. He has three ribs in his mouth, and these ribs have been picked clean, representing Libya, Egypt, and Babylon, the three major dynasties that it had overthrown. But while he's licking these ribs, he's still wanting more. Somebody says, you better get up and eat some more. It's like when your mom says, is that all you're going to have? You had six bowls. Is that all you're going to have? This guy's completely devoured these other kingdoms, but he's still starving for more conquest, Medo-Persia. But this is going to give way to a leopard with four wings. Now, a leopard is very fast. And this is going to represent Greece because Greece was known for its unexpected and rapid attacks. 
And what's interesting is that you take a leopard who is already a fast animal and then you put four wings on it, you're talking about lightning speed here. As a matter of fact, Alexander the Great in eight years conquered 11,000 miles. The beast has four heads looking in all directions. May represent his four generals, but at least we know representing, looking in all directions, seeing what he can conquer, trying to conquer whatever he can conquer at whatever time he might be able to conquer it. And then this is going to give away to a nondescript beast, which represents Rome. Now, nondescript in the sense that there's nothing on earth that compares to it. You can't point to another animal and say, oh, this mirrors that. There's nothing on earth that mirrors this. It's terrible. It's dreadful. It's ruthless. Nothing on earth represents it. It has iron teeth. Remember, Rome in the statue had iron legs. Here the beast has iron teeth. It crushes and grinds and grinds and grounds everything that comes within its grasp. But then once again, we get the idea that this Roman Empire is going to develop into something even more later because it has ten horns to it. It has ten horns with a little horn that comes out of it. Now you understand that unless something's a freak of nature, it only has two horns. So if you've got ten horns, you've got five times the normal power that you would normally have. And he tells us in verse 24 of Daniel 7 that these horns represent kings. So it appears like there's going to be a ten-king confederation of the Roman Empire. Well, no time during Rome's earlier existence was there ever a ten-king confederation of the Roman Empire. So obviously this is referring to something that is still out there in the future. It hasn't happened yet. It will happen when the Roman Empire revives. Out of these horns, this ten-king confederation is going to come a little horn. And this little horn, he says, has eyes. Eyes in the Bible speak of intelligence. And it says that he's able to speak great things. And of course, when we look at Antichrist, which is going to come out of this confederation, we know according to Revelation 13 that he is going to speak with great swelling words. He's going to be able to woo people with his speech. Have you ever heard people who are such good speakers that you would amen things you didn't even believe? You know, preacher speaking, you're like, amen, wait a minute. That's the way Antichrist is going to be. With great swelling words, he's going to be able to galvanize people to himself with a bloodless kind of war. So basically this progression that we see in Daniel 7 mirrors the statue that we saw in Daniel 2. It's just adding the element of ferocity to it. When we get to Daniel chapter 8, he gets telescopic on two of these. Now remember, Babylon gives way to Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia gives way to Greece. Greece gives way to Rome. Rome gives way to a revived Roman Empire. Daniel, of course, is very interested in what's going to immediately succeed what he's in the middle of. He's in the middle of the Babylonian Empire, just starting the Persian Empire. So God gets very telescopic with him. And God focuses on the next two in chapter 8. And he gets very minute in dealing with Medo-Persia and dealing with Greece. By giving him illustrations to, of these two kingdoms with a ram and a male goat. The ram with two horns is going to represent Medo-Persia. This is the garden spirit of Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia, in their empire, they thought that their guardian spirit was a male sheep. 
As a matter of fact, when Medo-Persia kings made decrees, they would actually wear a ram's head on their head as they would make the decisions. Now notice he has two horns, which is what you would expect, but one horn is longer than the other. Once again, the idea that something is, there's two, but one's more dominant. And the idea, of course, is that in the Medo-Persian Empire, you've got two entities, the Medes and the Persians, but the Persians are more dominant. And you'll notice here that he's looking out from the east and he looks to the west, the north, and the south, and he's going to gore everything that stands in his path, such as the nature of Medo-Persia. But this ram is going to give way to a male goat, and the male goat is going to represent Greece. Now the interesting thing about this male goat is that his feet don't touch the ground. In other words, he's just flying. He's moving with rapid speed. Though he has strength, he is known for the speed with which he conquers everything. And the great horn on this male goat stands for Alexander the Great. Now once again, you expect an animal to have two horns. We saw one with ten. Now we're seeing one with only one. In other words, all the power of Greece is localized and centralized in this lone figure, Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great conquered the world so rapidly, and yet he died. He was cut off at a very early age and replaced with four horns, representing the four generals that succeeded him. So the notable horn is Alexander the Great. The four horns that succeed him are his notable generals that follow him. And then out of all of this comes a little horn. Out of these four horns, there's this little horn that comes up. If we could loosely get the idea, a little pipsqueak. Uh, a guy who is small, who is an upstart, maybe we could think of it that way. And we say, well, who was this upstart that came out of the four generals? Who was this guy? This is a representative of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes doesn't really stand out in history as a notable character so much. But the reason the Bible focuses on him is because the way he acts, he serves as a great type of what Antichrist is going to do later on. So he is a little horn who's going to represent another little horn who's coming later. And we'll talk about that when we get further into Daniel. But that's the reason he's referenced here at this point. Now all of this is unsettling to Daniel as we move into chapter 9. These are the text verses that we began with. All this is unsettling to him. He didn't anticipate that kingdoms were going to come after Babylon. He thought 70 years and we're done. 70 years we're out of this. And now you're telling me that there are four and a, and a kingdoms that are coming and a, and a revival of the Roman Empire. How long is all of this going to take? And he is wanting to know some answers to all of this. So as we get into the end of chapter 9, God answers his questions to some degree by talking about the 70 weeks of Daniel. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9. Look at verse number 25. Here's what God wants him to know. Look at it. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall even in troublous times and after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off but not for himself. 
And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, when you see the word week, think of like we think of our term dozen, meaning uh, 12. Think of the word week as meaning seven. Daniel thought, okay, we only have 70 years, right, God? And God says, no, 77s of years, 70 weeks of years. In other words, my program, Daniel, is not done with this 70 years. I have a full 490-year program that I need to tell you about. Now, how does this flesh itself out? Well, he tells us that this 70 weeks, these 490 years, are going to begin with a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Now, there were several decrees that allowed the Jewish people to go back. There was a decree by Cyrus in 483. There was another decree by Darius in 519. But the decree that is under discussion here is the one that was issued by Artaxerxes in 445 BC because this is the one that actually allowed them to rebuild the city walls, the plaza, the moat, to get their civic life back in order again. This is what started the 70 weeks of Daniel ticking was this decree that happened in 445 BC. At the end of 69 weeks, at the end of 69 sevens, at the end of 483 years, he tells us that Messiah is going to be on the earth. Notice verse 26, and after three score and two weeks, there's seven, and then there's three score and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off. Now, notice here that Messiah is going to be on the earth. Now, you remember in ancient times, they didn't have a 365 and one-fourth day calendar. Their calendar was 360 days. So if you start counting at 445 B.C. with a 360-day year calendar, that puts us at 32 A.D. And at 32 A.D., someone's going to be on the earth presenting themselves as Messiah. Now let me ask you a question. Do you know of anybody that was on the earth in 32 AD who was presenting himself as the Messiah? I mean, this sounds, I mean, if I were witnessing to any person who was Jewish who accepted the inspiration of the Old Testament, even if they didn't accept the New Testament, this is one of the lead passages I would go to. Their own prophet said that if you count from 445 B.C. and end up at 32 A.D., Messiah's going to be on the earth. Well, who at 32 A.D. was on the earth presenting himself as the Messiah of the Jewish people? Who was that? That was our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he goes even further. He says that Messiah is going to be cut off, but not for himself. Now, cut off, that's a technical term in the Old Testament for experiencing the death penalty. In other words, Messiah is going to be executed by the state. He's going to be on the earth, presenting himself as the Messiah, and he will experience the death penalty. He will be cut off. But he will be cut off, notice it, not for himself. Now, there's two ways that we can take that. Some people have taken it to mean that he's going to be cut off 
but not for himself. That is not for crimes that he committed, but for the crimes of other people. But I think more to the context here, he's saying that he will be cut off. But when he's cut off, he will not have anything that rightly belongs to himself. When Messiah suffers the death penalty, the kingdoms of this world will not have yet become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. He will be cut off not having received all that Messiah we intend for him to receive or that God intends for him to receive. Now sometime after Messiah is cut off without getting everything that rightfully belongs to him, the Bible tells us that the city and the temple will be destroyed. Now the city of course is the city of Jerusalem and the temple would be the temple within that city and it's going to be destroyed. Now we know from history that the temple and the city were destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And when that temple was destroyed, this instituted a period of wrath, a period that will determine, he says, until war and desolations are determined. And so in other words, there's going to be havoc for the Jewish people until God has reached a determined end for this havoc that is going to be wreaked upon them for rejecting the Messiah. Now notice what he says here. This is significant. He says here in verse uh, number 26, and after the three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now let me ask you a question. Who destroyed the city and the sanctuary? Well, we all know from history that the Romans did that. So the coming prince will be a Roman. This is not talking, the coming prince here in this verse is not talking about Jesus. Jesus was not a Roman. The coming prince is talking about a later prince who's going to come upon the earth who himself will be out of the people who destroyed the city and the temple. A Roman leader is coming. And this Roman leader is the one who is going to start the 70th week. After Messiah is on the earth and is cut off, it's almost like there's a hiatus, he says, of these predetermined wraths that are going to come upon the nation of Israel. And the 70th week, that last week, that final seven years, is not going to start ticking until, notice verse number 27, until he confirms the covenant with many for one week. So the 70th week begins not with the rapture, but with Antichrist confirming this covenant, ratifying this covenant with the Jewish people. Now in the middle of that week, in the middle of that seven-year period, notice what he's going to do. In the midst of the week, he says in verse 27, he will cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. So he's going to stop sacrifices. Now, Please understand, for him to stop sacrifices, three things would have to be true. The Jewish people would have to be in the land in order to offer sacrifices there. There would have to be a temple for them to offer those sacrifices in. And the sacrificial system itself would have had to have been reinstituted. So we can anticipate that the Jews will be back in the land. There will be a temple rebuilt for them. And in that rebuilt temple, they will be offering their sacrifices because in the middle of this seven-year period, Antichrist is going to cause those sacrifices in that temple to cease. Why? Well, notice it. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. He will then commit an abomination that makes that temple desolate. 
Now Jesus in Matthew tells us that this is going to happen right before his return. So this is something way in the future before the return of Christ, this abomination of desolation. You say, well, what is the abomination? What is so abominable? And the word overspreading there carries with it the idea of pinnacle, extreme. What extreme abomination would Antichrist commit, would this Roman prince commit that would be so atrocious that it would render the house desolate? Well, I think if we get a pretty good idea by looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where he's going to go into the temple He's going to put himself on the seat of God in that temple and declare himself to be God. Can you imagine anything more abominable than telling the world, I'm God, worship me? That will render that temple completely desolate. Their house will be desolate because of the abomination that is committed there by Antichrist. Now this brings us to a discussion about Antichrist in chapter 11. In chapter 10... Daniel is shown that there are demonic forces behind all of this. Antichrist is going, remember there's the king of Persia, he's withstood by somebody else. Behind Roman rule, behind governmental rulers, there are sometimes demonic forces. I don't think we even have to look outside of our own country to affirm that that could be true in certain instances. Um, I pastored uh, for a little while outside of Washington, D.C., and there are some wonderful politicians in Washington, D.C. Uh, there are other people how you wonder how they got elected, and it seems like they're energized by Satan. But this is not only true, what we see in biopsy is true, just demonic forces are at work behind human governments. And certainly this will be true of Antichrist. So when we get into chapter 11, we again start, the first half of this chapter again talks about Antiochus Epiphanes, who is serving as a type of Antichrist. But then in verse 36 of this chapter, Antichrist himself emerges. Now what's significant to me is this. This is a common Old Testament device. You remember in the Garden of Eden, talk to the snake, talk to the person controlling the snake. One gives way to the other. Um... You remember that God talks to the king of Tyre, then talks to the one who's controlling the king of Tyre. God talks to the king of Babylon, talks to the one who's controlling the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14. This is common Old Testament. So all of this is going to give way to an energized world ruler who we know as Antichrist. Now look at verse 36, and the Bible tells us what we can know about this Antichrist. And the king shall do according to his will. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and sh shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the god of his fathers nor the desire of women nor regard any god for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the god of forces and a god whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him. All right, several things. First of all, Antichrist does as he pleases. 
Now you understand that none of us have the opportunity to do as we please. We have to do what God pleases. Antichrist has no concern for himself. Ladies and gentlemen, I think we in our society today, we see an increasing deification of me. That what I want to do, it's your thing, do what you want to do. Years ago, I was watching a concert by Frank Sinatra in Madison Square Garden, a videotape of one. And he said this, he said, I'm, not go I'm going to sing the national anthem, but you don't have to stand. And I expected him to sing the Star Spangled Banner. But instead, he sang, I did it my way. And may I say to you that in many senses, that is America's national anthem. It's your thing. Do what you want to do. Antichrist is going to do all the, the selfishness of man will reach its apex in this guy who is against Christ, anti-Christ. He will do as he pleases. He will be a blasphemer. The word blaspheme, blaptophemy, to speak against. He will have no regard for his ancestral gods, whatever those ancestral gods may have been. Or Messiah. Now, there's several ways that we can interpret this desire of women. Some people thought he would be celibate. Some people think this he has no desire for women means that he's not going to have, uh, that he's going to be a homosexual. I suppose both of those hypotheses may have merit. But I think if you're looking at this from a Jewish mindset, the desire of every woman in Jewish Old Testament ideology was to give birth to the Messiah. That was the, the goal for which every woman looked forward to, to be the birther of the Messiah that was coming upon the earth. So the desire of the women was to have the Messiah. I think this is a very Jewish way of referring. He's not regarding his ancestral gods. He's not going to regard the Messiah in any way, shape, or form, or any god. He will be a non in our words. He's not going to be religious in any way, shape, or form. He's all about the worship of self. Well, what does he glorify? Well, the Bible's clear. He glorifies war, according to verses 38 and 39. He will deify war, motivating him to attack strong military installations, re uh, uh, rewarding his warriors with leadership and land if they're successful in doing so. But look what verse 40 says. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. And he shall enter into counties and countries and shall overflow and pass over. He shall enter into also into the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even the... Edom and Moab, the children of Israel, he shall stretch forth his hand also upon the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape, but he shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But tidings of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly to take away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. So Antichrist may do as he pleases. He may be a blasphemer. He may deify war. But here's the bottom line. He's going to be terminated. He's going to reach his end. When all that man has to throw, about, to throw against God is thrown out, still nothing. As the heathen rage and imagine a vain thing against the Lord and against his anointed, 
But the bottom line is, ladies and gentlemen, whatever man throws at God, God has the authority and the power to stop it, and he will, even as it reaches this apex. Which brings us to the final chapter of Daniel 12. The final chapter of Daniel, which is chapter 12. It's interesting that in Daniel chapter 2, the stone without hands destroyed the statue. In Daniel chapter 7, you saw the thrones of these beasts cast down. But those who are affiliated with the Messiah are not cast down. Look at verse 2. And many of them that sleep in the dust shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. It is true that some are thrown down to shame and everlasting contempt, but it is equally true that some people are going to arise, even though they may have been pulverized in the earth by the regimes of this world, some are going to rise to everlasting life. Look at verse 10. Many shall be purified and made white and tried. Oh, sure, the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand but the wise shall understand. Throughout all the courses of history, ladies and gentlemen, though there have been many people who have fought against God, there are people who got it, we can put it that way, who understood, who made themselves white through the atoning work of the Messiah on their behalf. So what's the conclusion? God's people win! Now, I heard people say it doesn't matter whether you win or lose. It's how you play the game. I think there's a Greek word for that, baloney. (laughs) If it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, why are you keeping score? I mean, it matters in the end whether you're on the winning side or not. So you and I must never, here's the application for this evening, You and I, though these kingdoms appear to be very strong and very precious and at times very ruthless, even though not very worth much, you and I should never let the powers that exist in this world squeeze us into their mold. We have a citizenship that is higher. I'm proud to be an American, but I have a citizenship that is higher than anything that exists on planet Earth. I am a citizen of heaven. I am belong to the Lord Jesus Christ who loved me and died for me. And I am going to heaven one day and I will be part of that kingdom that will never die, that will never deteriorate, that can never be dissolved. God's people win. Therefore, if it is true that God's people win, all right? Now remember, this is all pre-written history. God said, watch out, Babylon. Medo-Persia's coming. And it did. He said, watch out, Medo-Persia. Greece is coming. And they did come. Watch out, Greece. Rome is coming. And Rome came. And they did, just like God said. Well, if God was right about Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome... When he says, watch out, my kingdom's coming, I think he's got a credible track record. And I think if you and I look at the timeline, we ought to accept it and get in step with it.